I want to begin by contrasting two young lives. Both of them are fictional, but they do reflect the very different faces of Christianity in the world today. So we're going to call the main players in these stories Anya and Anna. And both of them are in their early 20s. Both would describe themselves as Christians. And both attended church on the particular Easter Sunday in which these stories are set. And we'll begin with Anya. Anya arrived at church early with her husband and three young children. They'd come early as they had done every single Sunday since giving their lives to Christ. They'd come early to be part of their church's breakfast program, which feeds over 100 local children each week. Having Christ in her life had filled her with such great joy that Anya wanted to serve in whatever way she felt she could. And so with her baby strapped to her back, Anya served as part of the catering team along with some of the other women while her husband joined the other men inside for prayer and her children played nearby with the children of the other people who were helping. As they were cleaning up after the breakfast program, Anya and another lady noticed a man across the road. He was wearing a black backpack and he was talking on a mobile phone. This was not the first time they'd seen them this morning. So Anya sent one of her children to fetch her husband to go and invite the man to come into church. But the man declined, stating that he was waiting for a taxi which hadn't shown up yet. Anya and her family went inside the church. Her husband's friend owned a guitar and he usually brought it on Sunday mornings and he would take requests while they worshipped together. Some Sunday mornings they would sing for an hour or more. Today was sure to be such a, a day because it was filled with the joy of the resurrection. It was Easter Sunday after all. Today, someone else had brought along a harmonica and someone else a battered tin whistle. They would indeed make a joyful noise on this day. It was Easter Sunday after all. Anya looked forward to the story of the empty tomb. She particularly loved the part about the two disciples running to the tomb after being told the news of the women. She imagined herself receiving that news and the great joy that she would feel at discovering herself that the tomb of her saviour was empty. It didn't matter how many times she heard that story, she would never grow weary of it. And in tough times, the knowledge that her saviour Jesus had defeated death was the knowledge that sustained her in her own trials. Everyone began praising God with great joy that morning, for it was Easter Sunday after all. The place resounded with echoes of he is risen and hallelujah and praise God. Minutes later, the man with the backpack entered the building and detonated a bomb that he had contained within that backpack. Two of the walls were instantly blown out. Nails, rubble, debris, bits of twisted metal through, 
flew through the air. Women and children screamed, chaos ensued. The roof began to creak and groan before collapsing on those below. In all, 28 people would be killed on that day with many more badly injured. Anya lost her husband and her eldest son on that Easter Sunday, but no one could take her Jesus away from her. The rubble has since been cleared. The blood has been cleaned from the remaining walls, but the church has not yet been rebuilt. Every Sunday morning, the breakfast program still serves food for the needy children. And every Sunday morning, they still meet for worship in growing numbers on the site that once held their beautiful church building. Many families lost a relative that day. All of them lost a family member, for most of them considered those they worshipped with to be closer than family. Indeed, for many, this was their only family for their own blood relatives had disowned them once their decision for Christ had been made public. All of them know that it could easily happen again, yet none have stopped coming to worship their Lord. Now, that was a fictional story, but you will find many, many like it if you search for them um, online or in the many books that are written about the persecuted church all over the world. We move to a different story, Anna's story. Young lady, same age. Anna didn't really feel like going to church on Easter Sunday. After all, it was a long weekend. And she'd also been on Good Friday because her mother had wanted her to join them at church. Long weekends were for sleeping in. Still, she supposed it was Easter Sunday, so she really should go. Besides, her mother would no doubt ask her if she had gone. So reluctantly, she rose and got ready to go. The next decision to be made was which church to go to. Her parents' church was 40 minutes away on the other side of town, and she hadn't left herself enough time to get there. So it was going to have to be somewhere local. Anna had been to a few churches lately, she had become regularly irregular at a church just a few blocks away, up until about the last six months or so when she had started to look for somewhere else. The people were nice enough, but it was older style, and the young adults group was quite small and didn't really have much of a social program. Besides, the pastor there didn't really know how to keep his message below 40 minutes, and she wasn't up for that on this particular morning. So she opted for another church that was about a 10-minute drive away. They usually had a great band and they had very talented singers. Their pastor was an engaging communicator who usually kept it to about 20 minutes. Anna arrived and took her place with about 400 others. She didn't recognise anyone. No one recognised her. But then it was Easter Sunday, so it was difficult to tell who was a regular and who was just visiting. The service was, that morning was okay, but it hadn't really done anything for her. She'd hoped for better. It was Easter Sunday, after all. She'd heard many similar sermons before, but then she supposed it was Easter Sunday and how hard must it be to come up with something new about the same story every year. 
She spent the latter part of the message scrolling through the menus for the local takeaways. Her boyfriend was coming for dinner and she wanted it to be special. They ate hot cross buns after the service. Anna wasn't much of a fan of hot cross buns, so she didn't hang around for long. She left kind of feeling a bit flat. Perhaps she'd have to start looking again for somewhere else. Surely there must be something better suited to her needs nearby. I'm sure most of you know someone like Anna. Sadly, her story is not that uncommon in Western churches. Perhaps you even ele recognise elements of her story in your own story. Perhaps your story lies somewhere between these two extremes. It's been quite difficult for me this week trying to figure out where, um, where to aim this morning because this morning's topic is about persecution, about the persecuted church, and yet we sit miles away from persecution. But these are the realities of the extremes that are within the family of God. We are a very small part of a very large global church and we must never allow ourselves to fall into the trap of believing that our reality is the lived reality for the rest of the world because it simply is not. In fact, it's not even the lived reality for the majority of Christians. The majority of Christians live in quite different circumstances to what we do. In many parts of the world, persecution is a daily reality that our brothers and sisters in Christ live with. Attending church, for many of them, is a high-risk activity. Owning a Bible, for many of them, is a high-risk activity. Speaking the name of Jesus is a high-risk activity. One in eight Christians worldwide are persecuted for following Jesus. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ and we must pray for them. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to Timothy in his second letter, 2 Timothy 3.12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, how do we reconcile that with what we experience? And if we look carefully at the structure behind the Beatitudes that we've been working our way through, I believe we get something of that very same sense. And the key question for us to consider today has to be, should we be concerned by the lack of persecution in our own situation? The Beatitudes and indeed the entire Sermon on the Mount are structured around this theme of righteousness. The first three of the Beatitudes all express a form of emptiness and they culminate with this hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the next three Beatitudes describe what starts to happen as that hunger and thirst is filled as we journey towards Christ-likeness. Transformation takes place. We see mercy, purity of heart, 
and peacemaking become outward expressions of this righteousness. And then verse 10, the verse that we come to this morning, tells us what the expected result of that righteousness will be. And it is persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, says Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And before we dig any deeper here, we need to take notice of the qualifier that Jesus uses. He did not say blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's not persecution that we're aiming for. It is righteousness. Righteousness is the key here. There are many reasons why Christians are persecuted, but only one of them invites blessing. <coughs> Self-righteous arrogance is a reason why Christians in the West might be persecuted. You know, that kind of Christian who's always finding fault with others and is not shy about letting other people know? There's no blessing in that. Lack of love is another. No one is ever one for the kingdom through harassment or intimidation. Harassment and intimidation might result in your persecution, but they won't result in blessing. Lack of grace is another. Many Christians take this I'm right and you're wrong attitude and we lack the good grace to listen. That too will invite persecution but not blessing. Persecution invites blessing only when it results from righteousness. And in this way, this beatitude is the coming together of all of those that we've looked at that go before it. Those that have gone before it spell out what the kingdom should look like. And this final one spells out what we should expect as a result of kingdom living or as a result of getting it right. Cameron Lee is an author who wrote a book called Unexpected Blessings. And he provides a summary, a great summary of this verse. He says, Blessed are those who heed everything the Beatitudes teach and are persecuted for it, not because it's somehow blessed in itself to suffer persecution, but simply because the Beatitudes point to the kind of life that God blesses. And so it shouldn't matter if you are living like Anya in a country where being a Christian is likely to find you cut off from your family, thrown out of your job, or facing a very real threat of violence and terrorism, or whether you're living like Anna in the West, eventually, if you are consistent in your pursuit of righteousness, you will clash with the culture that is around you, because it is a culture that is not interested in righteousness. So if you actively offer forgiveness and seek reconciliation with those who have hurt you, some will mock you for that. There will be those that will want to see you take revenge or simply cut that person or those people out of your life. 
there'll be some that will call you gullible or perhaps worse. They themselves may even cut you off because they are not capable of forgiving and seeking reconciliation with the person or persons who have hurt you both. You might dare to suggest that truth is not relative, that there is only one way to know God and that that is through Jesus Christ. Do that and you're sure to meet resistance from those who will accuse you of being intolerant. Set aside Sunday as a sacred day. Try explaining it to the parents of your children's friends that they cannot sleep over or will not be going to Sunday morning birthday parties because you worship together on Sunday morning. They will look at you like you are from another planet or that you're actively engaging in some form of child abuse. You will be talked about behind your back. You will probably be known as the religious family and you can wear that label with a badge, as a badge of honour because it says that you are doing something right. It says that my priorities are different. While colleagues are laughing and joking at someone else's expense, be that person that refuses to join in. When opportunity to climb the corporate ladder at the expense of someone else comes about, be the one that refuses to take a foothold on someone else. Stay away from crude talks and dirty jokes. Refuse to partake in dishonest practices. Give back if you are overpaid. Pray for your enemies. Look after your body as a temple of the Lord. Don't fill it with poisons and don't offer it to others except in godly relationships. Live simply. Be honest. Be generous with what you have. When we are living as citizens of the kingdom and when we consistently apply these kingdom values, when the Beatitudes reflect our attitudes, then we will be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And the flip side of that is that we will be less and less like the rest of the world. We will no longer fit in. We will be different and we can expect that there might be a reaction to that difference. Either people will be drawn to us and eventually to the source of righteousness that is in us or they will be repelled by us. So we might expect to see as the fruits of our lives, new converts, one for Christ, or we can expect to endure persecution from the kingdom of the world. And if either one of those two things are happening, then there is cause for much rejoicing. New converts, of course, are always a cause for rejoicing. And Jesus tells us in the parable of the lost sheep that even heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. But what about persecution? Where's the joy in being different, in being laughed at potentially, or falsely accused or scorned? 
Well, you only have to do a very brief scan through the book of Acts, the record of the early church, to see many examples of the joy in that sort of thing. Acts 5, the apostles have just been flogged by order of the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities of the day. Verse 41 records their reaction. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Act 7, Stephen's been seized and he's been dragged before the Sanhedrin. He's been falsely accused and he's about to be stoned. His reaction in verse 56. Look, he said, I see heaven opening and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Could there be a greater reaction of joy? Acts 8, the persecuted church is being scattered. Philip's gone to Samaria. The result, verse 8, there was great joy in that city. Acts 13, the city in Antioch. The Jews incite God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they expel them from the region. The disciples' reaction is recorded in verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. In each of these cases, the values of those involved were being shaped by kingdom perspective. That is how there could be great joy in Samaria amongst the disciples in city and Antioch, that is how what the world considered a disgrace, the apostles in Acts 5 considered a great honour because it meant they were worthy to share in the Lord's sufferings. Persecution, resistance, opposition, when it is for righteousness, means that we come close enough to Jesus to share in his own suffering. And so close was Stephen that he was even permitted a glimpse into heaven. So we've seen that people will either be drawn or repelled to us, and we see this being played out in some parts of the world where the church is facing great persecution, often, but not always, often there are great numbers coming to the Lord, and at the same time, persecution is increasing. So we see these two different reactions and they're happening at the same time. It's simultaneous attraction and repulsion. But what if it's not happening? What if people are neither drawn toward Christ nor they're repelled by us? What if there are no converts and there's no real opposition? What if there's no reaction at all? What if no one's even noticing? Now, it doesn't always mean that there's problems. Sometimes people take a long time to work through a decision for Christ. But I think it's certainly a sign that we need to have a good, hard look at ourselves. We need to ask some hard questions. Why are so few people taking any notice? 
Why is the church in the West largely in decline? Why are we losing power in our witness? Could it be that maybe there's not a great deal to take any notice of? Maybe the kingdom perspective has become indistinguishable from the perspective of the rest of the world around us. Anna's brand of Christianity in that fictional story that we opened with was filled with worldly perspective. Church was a bit of a chore, something she had to fit in with all of her other commitments. She'd go when it suited, but if she had something better on, she wouldn't bother. And her choices were dominated by consumerism and materialism. She wanted a church that would do something for her, make her feel good each week. And the choices that she made were based on the same mindset that the rest of the world makes the choices about the things that they're going to be involved in. Where will I like the music? Where's the message going to be more suited to me? Where's there going to be a better social program? So much of it was about her. There was no desire in there to serve. There was no sense of belonging to any community. And so it's little wonder that the rest of the world doesn't take much notice of that sort of attitude because that sort of attitude is hardly any different to what they experience every day. There is nothing to take notice of in that sort of attitude. If we truly want to be transformed, we want to be transformed into Christ-likeness, and if the Beatitudes are indeed informing our character, then we have to be prepared for what that will look like. And this eighth beatitude and the verses that come after it, which Pastor Glenn will work us through next week, they spell it out for us in a single word, persecuted. And if you want to put a bit more detail around what that one word might look like, then Isaiah's description of Jesus is probably helpful. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And so if we want to be like Christ, then we ought to be prepared, yes, for the joy and yes, for all those parts of his character that we're so familiar with, love and compassion and all of those things that we want to be. But we also have to be realistic and realise that suffering was also a part of who he was because he came from one kingdom to a very foreign kingdom kingdom of heaven to the kingdom on earth. True kingdom values and true kingdom perspective will always seem strange and even foolish in this world. And in one way or another, it will cause the world to take notice. And nowhere can I think of a more poignant example of that than the events that followed Palm Sunday 2017. Now, these are true events. Many of you will remember them. It wasn't that long ago you would have heard them on the news. Bombs exploded on Palm Sunday in 2017 in two Egyptian Coptic churches. 
50 were killed, more than 100 people were injured. Instead of fleeing in fear, within hours, that church was packed. It was packed full of regulars, but it was also full of many, many people who wouldn't normally attend. Father George, the, the priest in, in that church, stood before them and he preached a very humble and heartfelt three-point sermon that went viral in the space of about an hour all over the world. He titled his sermon, A Message to Those Who Kill Us. And some of you might remember it. Point one, he said, thank you. Father George said, thank you. You gave us to die the same death as Christ and this is the biggest honour we could hope to have. Kingdom perspective. He said, thank you because you have shortened the journey for us. Kingdom perspective. He said, thank you because you gave us to fulfil what Christ said. Behold, I send you out as lambs among the wolves. Kingdom perspective. He said, thank you for helping us. He said, there are people who have visited three, we have visited three, four, five times to encourage them to come to church. Still, they will not come. But now, people are saying, well, you never know when your number might be up. Better take more care of our spiritual lives. You have filled up our church. Thank you, he said, for all you have done for us without even noticing. It's kingdom perspective, isn't it? And we even heard some of that this morning in our testimony. I can't believe that she um, didn't mention the part about um, the problems that she's been having with her brain but she chose to focus on the joy of the presence of God. That's kingdom perspective. Now, trials and suffering, they're not the same as persecution, but the perspective that we take can be the same. Point two from Father George, he said, we love you. And he prefaced this point by saying, unfortunately, you won't understand this at all because this too is a teaching of our Christ. And I want to tell you about how wonderful he is. And then Father George went on to explain Jesus' teaching about love for one's enemies using Matthew 5, 46. If you love those who love you, what reward is there in that? He's expressing kingdom values that flow out of a kingdom perspective. Finally, point three from Father George was, we pray for you. He reasoned that if a terrorist could know God and experience his love, they would never do such things as had been done in that place. We pray for you, he said. Kingdom values, again, flowing out of that kingdom perspective. And for a short while, the whole world took notice of what the Christians were saying because their reaction was so radically different from that which the world had expected. And he concluded by describing those who had been killed from his own church as crowns 
He said, oh, you lucky, lucky ones. And until it is our turn, to God be the glory. Amen. Thank you. We love you. And we pray for you. Is that not a living picture of the Beatitudes attitudes? We have so much to learn from the persecuted church. They need our prayers. They most definitely need our prayers and it is our responsibility to uphold these people who are suffering so much for their faith with our own prayers. But we need their kingdom perspective. We need their faith and we need their joy in the Lord that transcends circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, this eighth beatitude is such a challenge to us because it forces us to examine our own journey with you and to ask just how Christ-like we really are. Are we Christ-like enough for anyone to really take any notice? Forgive us, Lord, for our shallow view of who you are, for desiring your love and your compassion whilst ignoring your suffering servant nature. Forgive us to, for reducing your church to those parts that we are familiar with and neglecting our brothers and sisters in Christ in places far away who suffer and die each day for you. Strengthen them, Lord. May your daily presence comfort them in their distress. Empower them by your Holy Spirit and give them a deep joy that is beyond their circumstances. Help us to be faithful in prayer for these dear ones who are our brothers and sisters in Christ and your beloved sons and daughters. Amen. If you'd like to stand, we're going to sing our closing song. And this morning, we're singing in solidarity with these brothers and sisters who are experiencing real persecution for their righteousness. May God daily be their strength.